MailChimp presents. We all have that elder, you know, like an auntie, a friend, a parent, who drops wisdom on us and changes the course of our lives. This season, I'm talking to 15 incredible people about important moments they went through and how the elders in their lives got them through it. I'm your host, Jenny Yang, and this is Going Through It. This week, Melissa Proctor. The way that my mom's advice really kind of helped me is one, it was always me willing to raise my hand and take on the jobs no one else wanted to do. And so being scrappy, coming in, not feeling like I'm above or beneath anybody, you know, and to this day, I still carry that energy and I believe that's helped me a lot. Taking that first step is tough. And we've heard this a million times. I want to do this cool thing, but to get there, I've got to start with this tough thing. And let's be honest, it's not always fun. This episode is for anyone struggling to just begin. Sometimes I can't believe I get to make a living doing comedy. Well, I mean, I I can believe it because I'm very funny and I work my ass off. But, you know, it wasn't always this way. When I started doing comedy, I took a class, I read books, I watched shows, but you don't become a stand-up comedian without just doing it. You get on stage and tell that first attempt at a joke. Bombing sucks, hitting a punchline is like a high, but it all starts with that first step, writing that first joke, getting on that first stage. Today's conversation with Melissa Proctor is her first step story. Back in the 90s, Melissa was a teenager attending art school in Miami by day. And by night, she was casually making history with the Miami Heat as the first ever ball girl. Because I wanted to be good and helpful so much, they ended up calling me queen because they said I reminded them of Queen Latifah and living single. And it was like queen of the court. She was raised in an immigrant family. Her mom, a nurse who emigrated from Belize to the U.S., always encouraged Melissa to follow her dreams wherever they took her from sweeping basketball courts to running things in corporate headquarters. She's even written a book about her journey called From Ball Girl to CMO. That's right. Today, Melissa is the chief marketing officer for the Atlanta Hawks, where she's been making her mark. Like in 2020, the Hawks became the first NBA team to open up their buildings for early voting. Okay, democracy. But It was a conversation with her mom about getting her first job at 15 that laid the groundwork for her success. So I want to get right into it. Like, talk to me about who teenage Melissa was. Like, what were you like? Oh, wow. Teenage Melissa was really chubby. I would shop at Lane Bryant and had none of the cool clothes because none of the cool clothes fit me. Oh my gosh, I just saw a picture of myself. <laughs> like as a kid, I was in, I used to go to Jamaica or Belize every summer. And I had a picture of me in Jamaica with my cousins and I had on this huge oversized shirt. Like TLC was great. Everything was like, for a while, like middle school, it was all cross colors and crisscross. And so like the baggy cross colored, bright yellow shorts. And for a while I had glasses. Um, I didn't really need them, but I thought they were cool. And so they, prescribed them to me and I wore them for a while, had braces, like, you name the awkwardness, I definitely had it. And it was an artist, I was always the quirky art girl. So middle school, high school, I was in magnet art classes and that was my focus. I 
would, you know, hang out with my cousin and, you know, do stuff with my family. I was an only child, so it was just me and my art and my parents. I love teenage Melissa. So how did basketball come into your life? So I had a cousin who was a huge fan of the Miami Heat and the NBA, so I started watching basketball games with her, and I fell in love with it. At the time, the Miami Heat, Dan Marley, Lonzo Mourning, Tim Hardaway were like really amazing players. Pat Riley's a head coach. Like it was an amazing time in Miami Heat basketball history. And I watched The Last Dance and Michael Jordan, like all of that is around the same time. And so I remember loving Dennis Rodman. And I think that was the artist creative in me because he was so left and so different and unique from everyone else. And he was an amazing player at the same time. And so I remember his shoes came out, Air Worms. They were Nikes and I bought them and I was like, these are so cool. And they were like, you zip them up on the side and they had these quirky little holes in them. Like right now they made no sense as a shoe, <laughs> but they were my favorite things ever. And so it was those little nuggets that made me really kind of connect with it because it felt much larger than life. So wait, were your parents into that kind of stuff? Like what was it like growing up with your mom? First of all, she had me at 42. And I was her first and only child. So she had lived her life. like, And so by the time she had me, I was the miracle child that no one ever thought would come to life. My parents were probably married three years before I was born. And this is like pre-IVF. Like there was no extra this. It was just like, wow, and here she is. So when I was growing up, my mom was always super chill. And people thought she was my grandmother because she had gray hair. But she was salt and pepper like in her 20s. I remember, you know, when everyone was like having pagers and beepers and stuff, and I didn't get an allowance. It wasn't that kind of party. So the idea of just being able to get a job was something I was always thinking about and talking about. And so when I was around 15, I was like, you know, mom, a lot of my friends are getting jobs. And they were working at this mall called The Falls in Miami near my house at the movie theater. And I really wanted to work there because I love that mall. And so, you know, she was like, oh, you want to get a job? Like, do you need money? And I was like, well, not really, but I want money, you know, to do stuff with. And she's like, okay, Mel, you can get a job as long as that job is in whatever you want to do for the rest of your life. And I wasn't, I don't think I was prepared for that at that moment. It seemed like such a a monumental thing. Like I had to make that decision right there in her bedroom, <laughs> split second, what are you doing forever? Gun your head, go. And so I, I thought about it. And so when I would watch the games, there were never any women. And this is, you know, 94, 95, 96, no women on the sidelines, no women in the locker room, um, no female referees, none of that. And so I told my mom, <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna become the first female coach in the NBA. And she looked at me and she said, okay, go get a job in the NBA. And I don't even know if she knew what NBA stood for at the time, but she laid down the gauntlet. She was like, well, that's what you got to do. And I am so thankful for that advice then, because I don't know if I would be anywhere near or connected to what I'm doing now had she not said that. She could have laughed it off and been like, ha ha ha, or sure, you know, go play basketball. But she was like, no, you want that? Go get a job in the NBA. I love that. I just feel like that's a very special kind of piece of advice, you know, because, you know, I have immigrant parents who are the most practical, you know, they save Tupperware. Yes. They save takeout boxes. You know what I mean? You don't know what you're going to find inside a tub of cottage cheese. You know what I mean? (laughs) Or butter. When you're done with the cottage cheese, it's going to be something different. 
you know, we wash our Ziploc bags. And to me, I always feel like the stereotype of immigrant parents is always like, just do what you can to survive, right? But, and so for me, I feel like when I heard your story, like, wow, there's something special about your mom to have given you this kind of very special advice where truly she's like, swing for the fences. Don't dilly-dally, okay, in these like typical teenage young people jobs, maybe, right? Like, have some thought about it. Go into the field that you want to actually be in, even if it's cleaning for, up for the people that are doing the thing you want to do, you know? And mm-hmm. so, I, you know, I, I'm really curious about your mom and like, what makes her special? What do you think is it about your mom that gave her the audacity to give you that kind of a bold piece of advice? She was so dynamic. And I think by the time I came along, like I said, she was 42 when she had me. She had lived so much life. And so, like, I had other aunties and uncles, and they would be, like, the one catering and let me come home and cook and do this. My mom was like, no, food's on the table. Like, you figure yourself out. And it's probably why my parents got divorced. But either way, <laughs> like, she she just had this, like, aura of joy within her. And even as a nurse working in the hospital, the doctors always loved her. They would dote on her. She had this brilliant smile. And she would haggle for anything. So we may go to the swap shop in Florida and something will cost $20. She's like, give it to me for four. And they would look at her like she was crazy, but she'd probably leave with it for like five bucks. But that was just who she was. And she would do that in everything. Okay. Your mom was the best. So she gave you this advice. If you want to work in the NBA, go get a job in the NBA. But how did you actually get your foot in the door? Like, where did you even start? So I started writing letters. I found literally yellow pages, like found numbers and an address for the Miami Heat would use my artwork to draw on the envelopes. I would draw Miami Heat logos or pictures of players or whatever I could to make my letters in the envelope stand out. And didn't even know who I was writing to. I think initially it was just like customer service or community relations. Um, And then I got a call from someone that said, you should try the equipment manager. So I would call and write, call and write. And one day I got connected to Jay Sable, who was then the equipment manager. And he, you know, talked to me initially and was like, hey, you know, we don't have any jobs for girls. You know, we have some some ball boys and that's about it, you know, in your age group. And so I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm interested in, in, you know, in helping any way that I can. And so I continued to call and write. And at one point he said, if you call me one more time, I'm not going to hire you. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I stopped for a minute. Then I kept calling. <laughs> then one day he invited me in for a preseason game. And that was my first professional sporting event in my life at the then Miami Arena and the beginning of my career in sports. So tell me about your first game as a ball girl. I remember feeling so <laughs> um, unprepared. So I think as soon as I got there, they gave me a whole outfit, which I thought was cool. It was a free heat outfit with sneakers and everything. And I was like, I have to pay for this? They're like, no, let's take it. I didn't know about swag premiums at the time. But I remember I got there, and because I was the first girl, even when my boss was not unsure of what to do with me, he's like, well, you can't go in the locker room so you can work the court. And there was a young man named James who had been a ball boy for a while. He kind of took me under his wing, and he was like, all right, kid, this is what you got to do. You know, help the guys carry their bag to their car, and they'll tip you. Or, like, You're, this is how you make money doing this job. Mm. And so it was helpful. But the first thing they said was like, hey, go rebound. 
I had no idea how to rebound. I never played basketball a day in my life. And so I'm under the basket looking for the ball to come down. I think I got knocked down. I remember I got it like a busted lip. No. Um, yeah, 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 true story. And I just didn't know. And they were like, hey, no, step back. Don't stand directly under the basket. You know, when it comes down, then you pass it. So because I wanted to be good and helpful so much, they ended up calling me Queen because they said I reminded them of Queen Latifah and Living Single at the time. And it was like Queen of the Court. So after you were a ball girl, you went from the NBA to Turner Broadcasting for 11 years. And now you're back at the NBA running things. How does it feel when you step back and look at this amazing journey? Like it all started with this conversation with your mom. It's a full circle moment now, obviously being back in the NBA, but for 11 years, I was everything from a graphics producer, a marketing intern, a brand strategy person helping to rebrand Court TV to True TV, business strategy. I did all these different things. And I think the way that my mom's advice really kind of helped me is always me willing to raise my hand to take on the jobs no one else wanted to do. And so being scrappy, coming in, not feeling like I'm above or beneath anybody, you know, and to this day, I still carry that energy. And I believe that's helped me a lot. When you reflect on your relationship with her now, what do you think of? You know, to be honest, when she was alive, um, she passed away. She was in a nursing home here in Georgia, in Atlanta. And we would talk about everything under the sun. And she was queen roaster. Like, she was hilarious. And I was way more junior in my career at the time when she passed away. And so I don't think that I probably got to the point of making those connections. I had had some success and she was super proud of me. Like, they got written up in a magazine or something. And she was like, this is my daughter. This is my, like, she was just so proud. I, I would always give her her flowers while she was alive. So literally and figuratively, because she loved flowers. I'd be like, hey, this is what she, whatever she wanted, I made sure that I did. And so her advice of always doing my best while I utilize it, is it related to school or professionally? I also took it to personal. And so when she was alive, I said, you know, whatever I could do to help her. She's like, I want my own room. I was like, okay, we'll do it. Like I, and I wasn't married. I didn't have any other support. It was just me. But, you know, I was blessed in ways that I was always able to provide for her. And so she was right there with me every step of the way. But now that I'm in this position at this time with my daughter, the perspective has shifted so much for me personally, because I'm like, wow, there are so many questions that I have for her that I can't ask now. So a big motivator for me writing my own book was to be able to provide clarity, context, understanding from my journey for my daughter. So God forbid anything happens and I'm not here. She's not trying to put together pieces like I've been trying to do for my mom's past. So you like to say that you still don't know what you want to do when you grow up, right? No clue. In my mind, when you define what you want to be when you grow up and then you get there, then you're done. And I don't ever want to be done. I want to continue to learn and grow forever. I love that. I love that. I feel like, you know, when um, when people are like, hey, Jenny, you're a comedian. Uh, what do you want to do in five years? Part of me is already like, you know what? I'm already really happy with what I'm doing. You know, I'll probably want to be doing it with more, you know, more collaborators and more interesting people. But I made a living doing comedy. <laughs> are you kidding <laughs> That's me? Awesome. This is I'm already making my dreams come true. And I think that did always confuse people because I feel like when people ask you, what do you want to be doing? They're expecting some kind of very specific thing, yeah. right? 
as if you know, as if you can conjure up that one thing. It's like, well, I, what, do I want to be Oprah? No, I'm not, I don't want to be Oprah. I want to be whatever it is I am. Exactly. In these ways that fulfill me, right? And so, I, you know, I, I feel like I've tried to learn that lesson for myself, but communicating that to others has been, you know, a challenge because I feel like, you know, as a work culture, especially in America, it's very linear, right? Yeah. It's very like, what's the path that we are familiar with? And so I love that the artist in you, like, I, I feel like I really relate to that feeling of like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm already, all I know is I'm very happy with, with what I'm doing now. And let me just keep doing this in different ways, you know? A hundred percent. And it's funny, I had a, a mentor <laughs> kind of you know, it's talked to me about the hedonic treadmill. And I was like, what's that? It's like, you know, Ooh. as soon as you get to one phase or one place in your life or career, you think, as soon as I get here, I'm going to be happy. Yes. And then when you get there, there are other people around you who are doing these things. And you're like, oh man, but now that I'm here, I could do this, this, and this. And so it's a never ending, you're on the treadmill. You're forever trying to reach the next phase of something because it's going to be that phase that's going to bring joy or happiness or a sense of fulfillment. And then people are forever yes. trying to climb this ladder to what I don't know. And so for me, I'm like, and I think growing up and going to Belize and Jamaica every summer, totally native and having family that's, you know, content with, you know, having fruits and vegetables in the yard and washing clothes and hanging them on the line and having a really fulfilled, mm. happy life and going to the beach with the family on the weekends, that's joy. And so to me, I always saw these fighting cultures and I'm like, I want both of them. <laughs> so when I was like, of course I yeah. want to achieve and do my best, but not at the risk of not being fulfilled or happy in life. And so it's always trying to kind of remain humble and see and understand that balance. Like, you know, at some point you have enough. We don't always have to try to strive. Obviously the culture in the U.S. is very much around like more, having more. Mm. Mm -hmm. The Instagram life. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I have a mom who for the first year that we were in America, she hand washed all of our underwear. <laughs> And, you know, it was a garment worker and, you know, maybe I want like a washer and dryer and yet I still want to be able to pluck a piece of fruit and go to the beach. Yeah. I want both. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's joy. Melissa's journey is a perfect example of how no task is too small on the way to achieving your goals. I think it's hard to give ourselves the permission to take that first step. Melissa had her mom in her corner, pushing her to do that first ball girl gig in the NBA. But let's give ourselves that permission. How about that? Especially for the exciting and scary stuff. Okay, like right now. I will tell you something that excites me and scares me. I work as a TV writer, but someday I want to create my own television shows and direct and write my own movies. I want to create art that will add meaning, beauty, and connection to our culture. <sighs> okay, my heart is racing faster just saying that. It's a big, beautiful vision that inspires me. What's your big, beautiful vision? I want all of us to take that first ball girl in the NBA energy from Melissa Proctor to get there. Going Through It is an original podcast created in partnership with MailChimp and Pineapple Street Studios. Executive producers for Going Through It are Jayanne Berry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Our managing producer is Agarenish Ashagre. 
This season is produced by the all-star team of Sophia Steiner-Evoy, Emerald O'Brien, and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. And we're edited by the irreplaceable Aaron Edwards. We're engineered to perfection or very close to it by Davey Sumner. Our theme music was produced by Raj Makija. Dawood Anthony also produced original music for this season with additional tunes from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Extra special thanks to Himia Freeman for his support on this production. And of course, the biggest thanks to my own elders for everything and for being the inspiration behind the show. Mom, Dad, Margaret Cho, Tracy Kato Kiriyama, Keiko Agena, Tim Sams, Gina Lu Gong, Quan Fung, Michelle Ko, and so many more. And thanks in general to my loud-ass partner, Corey Higgs, for staying quiet in the house for me. And thank you for listening.